We're in this new series. Uh, today is week two. Uh, it's a series called Women of the Word. And each week, a different woman from Coastal is speaking on a different woman from Scripture. And last week for Mother's Day, wow, uh, Rachel Spear, Kathy Beam, they did a great job. Uh, Kathy uh, shared her very powerful testimony. Rachel had a great message on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And today, uh, today's speaker is none other than Ashley Honacki. Uh, Ashley and Ed have been a part of our church here at Coastal for a little over eight years now, and together uh, they have served and led in various uh, capacities and ministries here. And I'm going to let Ashley tell you a little bit more about the season of life uh, that she finds herself in right now. But Ashley is on our staff team here at Coastal. She is the lead office administrator. In other words, as I like to say, Ashley is the wizard behind the curtain, okay, here at our church. In other words, she makes all of our lives a whole lot easier, mine included. Now, before Ashley shares her message, Stephanie Olson from our church is going to share her testimony. And like Kathy, she shares it from a point of vulnerability, but it's this beautiful story of transformation. When we give God our brokenness, he turns it into something beautiful. So prepare your hearts and minds to hear a powerful message from Stephanie Olson and Ashley Honacki you are going to be blessed. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and I wanted to share a story about grace and forgiveness with you today. I grew up in a strict family where the rod most certainly was not spared. I am the third of four children. My older brother beat me, called me awful names, and treated me terribly for as far back as I can remember. He was always in trouble, but usually got to do anything he wanted, at least in my childlike eyes. I was a great student and didn't really get into trouble, but I realized in my preteen years that the only way to get attention in a large family was to act out a little. One night when I was 13, I went to a friend's house and we invited a couple boys over. We went to school with one of them, but we didn't know the other one. My friend left me alone in the room with a boy we didn't know, and before I could do anything about it, he had raped me. He was 18. I was raised that sex was to be saved for marriage. I was devastated, embarrassed, ashamed, physically and mentally hurt. Over the course of the next year and a half, he continued to sexually and emotionally abuse me. He had me believing that he loved me, all the while dictating what I could wear, who I could talk to, what I could eat, and in every aspect of my life. I was not allowed to tell anyone, so I kept a secret life. When I was 15, I became pregnant. My mother realized it before I did. Little did I know that she was having my older brother spy on me due to my change in behavior. She confronted me and had me take a pregnancy test. When it was positive, she scheduled an appointment for me to have an abortion. She told me I was not allowed to discuss this with anyone and her and my father would be the only people to know about it. So a month before my freshman year of high school, I had an abortion. Of course, the boy took off as soon as he found out I was pregnant. So here I was feeling completely alone and that no one cared about me. I felt like I had no one to talk to. I remember sitting in church with my sister and yelling at God in my head, 
How could you do this to me? I don't believe in you anymore, and I hate you. I struggled with depression and self-worth through high school. I became very promiscuous, and I didn't really care about anything. I graduated high school a year early and started going to Trident Tech. When I was 18, I met my now husband at a restaurant we both worked at. He was the first good guy I ever dated. Our first date was in May, and we got married in August, just three months later. We moved across the country to Las Vegas the next month. I felt like I needed to get away from my life as fast as possible, especially my still abusive brother, and this was the ticket to do it. We moved back to Charleston a few years later when we decided to have a family. I struggled a lot those early years. Imagine getting to know a stranger while married. I started to see a therapist because I just couldn't find peace with myself, my marriage, or my life. Although that helped tremendously, there was still something missing. When I was 27, a coworker invited me to church with her for Easter. It was a non-denominational church and I was raised Episcopal. I was very reluctant, but I figured I would do it for her. I sat in the back row with her Catholic mom, both of us with our arms crossed over our bodies. As I sat there, I remember the pastor talking about what he would say to Jesus when he met him. Not the typical wire birds called bird jokes, but from the heart, a loving, real life, heart to heart conversation. By the end of the sermon, I was a crying ball of mush. I had surrendered my life to Christ and it scared me to death. I didn't go back the next week and my daughter had begged me to. We started going the following week and I've barely missed a Sunday since. At church, I found what was missing. I found healing from my heavenly father and forgiveness for all I had done. I realized that you don't have to be what has happened to you. My husband started attending several months later and he also gave his life to Christ. We ran the children's ministry in VBS for numerous years. I assisted with the youth and I found healing telling my story to young girls. I found a way to serve God through what had happened. We've been attending Coastal now for about six years. I started attending life groups every semester and found a group of ladies that shared my background. We have formed an amazing bond and they have helped me to heal even further. I realized that God can turn my story into a story about Him. I have since opened up to my entire family about my past and could not have done so without God's grace. It is true when you hear, God doesn't use the qualified, He qualifies the called. I never thought a year ago I would be able to stand here and tell the world His story. Wow, what a powerful testimony from Stephanie, and a huge thanks for her just being vulnerable and open and sharing her story. God is so good, and it's been so cool to see all these women step up and say yes to God, even when it's scary. My name's Ashley Honacki, and I would say it's good to be here with you, but truthfully, it's a little terrifying. When Pastor Chris approached me with doing this message, I honestly thought I was being punked because he also knows my fear of public speaking. 
But when we spoke about this series, Women of the Word, we wanted to have women to represent all different stages of life. Women with grown children, with teenage children, and women with little children. And I would represent the young, wild, and free, well-rested woman with no children. However, as God loves to laugh at our plans, he has decided to bless my husband and I with our first little one coming in September. And being pregnant during a pandemic hasn't given me any anxiety whatsoever. But the good news is, you can't be mean to a pregnant woman. I'm pretty sure it's the 11th commandment, but don't quote me on that. So here we are. You guys just have to tell me I did a good job no matter what. Maybe tell me I'm glowing. Otherwise, there is a 100% chance I will cry. But I am the office manager here at Coastal, and if you're wondering why I'm up here, trust me, that makes two of us. I am certainly not qualified by scholarly standards, but thank goodness we serve a God who doesn't call the equipped, but he equips whomever he has called. And that's what I want to talk about today is our calling. I'm going to dive into today's message, which comes to you from Esther. And I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the story of Esther, but it is so good, and I would encourage you to take some time to read it this week. We're going to do a very highlighted version of the story of Esther, one that makes sense in my head, which basically means it reads more like a soap opera rather than a King James text, but I promise you we can pull out the same lessons and points. So we start off in Esther 1, meeting King Xerxes. He's basically the top dog of all kings at this time. He's king of what is known now as Iraq, ruled over northern Africa to the west and India to the east. He's also known as a little bit of a party animal. He decides to hold this six-month exposition for people to come and basically see how cool the land that he rules over is. And at the end of the exposition, he decides he wants to throw a week-long party basically a seven-day bender. On the last day, he and his friends are hanging out, and he decides he wants to show off his queen, Queen Vashti, to all of his buddies. While the queen refuses to come out and parade around like a show pony to her husband and all of his drunk friends. Like the nerve of this lady, right? Well, it really upsets the king, especially when his boys do the, oh, no, she didn't kind of thing. And he's so angry with her refusal to obey that he banishes her from the kingdom and says, out with the old, in with the new, I need a new queen, someone less difficult. So here we enter what really could be a season of The Bachelor, starring King Xerxes. Mordecai, a Jewish man living in the area, realizes that his cousin Esther, who his family adopted, might just have a chance at stealing the king's heart because she is a showstopper. I'm talking drop-dead gorgeous. And so Esther agrees to enter, and as soon as the king sees her at what I imagine to be a final rose ceremony, he gives her the final rose and takes her to be his queen. One day, Mordecai is at the city gate, and he overhears two men hatching a plot to kill King Xerxes. When Mordecai hears what they're going to do, he sends a note to Esther to let her know now that she is his wife. Esther warns the king and gives all the credit to Mordecai, So the king has the two conspirators killed and the incident is recorded in the official records. Now keep this detail in mind because I promise it will come up later and piece together. But fearing for his life, the king decides to institute this massive shakeup. He promotes this obnoxious politician named Haman who is just arrogant and prideful and literally requires people to bow down before him whenever he walks in front of him. 
and everyone does this except one man, a Jew named Mordecai. Being Jewish, Mordecai was committed to only bowing before God. And this irritated Haman to no end, to the point that he went to the king and said they needed to do something about it. And by do something, he meant kill off an entire race of people. Somehow, the king agrees to this, and Haman issues a decree that basically says, on a certain day, you have a legal right to kill all the Jews that you can kill, and you won't be prosecuted. And furthermore, you will get all of the property that that Jew had. Think about the movie The Purge, just biblical times. When Mordecai hears about this decree, he's understandably devastated. He begins to mourn and weep. And when Queen Esther hears about Mordecai's mourning, she goes to find out what's going on. Mordecai pleads with Esther to use her position to take a stand on behalf of her people. In Esther 4.8, he says, please go into the king's presence, beg for mercy with him for our people. And naturally, Esther's initial response is fear. Her own husband doesn't even know she's Jewish. She heard what happened to the ex-queen Vashti when she didn't cooperate. She was banished. And it wasn't appropriate for any woman at this time to come before the king without being summoned, including his wife. So when Mordecai hears Esther's hesitancy and her fear, he really turns up the heat and makes a passionate plea in verses 4, 13 through 14. He says, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Whew, Mordecai is laying it on thick. But this is when we see a change in Esther. Her faith and her courage kick in. In verses 15 through 16, Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she instructs all God's people in Susa to spend three days praying and fasting. Notice that she doesn't try to do this alone. She knows she's going to need some help, and she doesn't rush into this either. After she replenishes her spiritual tank, she tells Mordecai, I will then go and see the king. She decides to risk her life courageously saying, if I perish, I perish. She's been transformed from this bachelorette contestant based on her beauty to this bold, brave woman of God. So I just like to visualize Esther walking down the long corridor to see the king that has not summoned her. And like, I thought I was nervous speaking today, but can you even imagine, you can almost hear the doom and gloom music playing. So King Esther sees her and he smiles and he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What do you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom if you want it. I mean, we're all thinking, whew, that was easy. We'd give him our request along with a few other things. But Esther's smarter than that. She's not just beauty. This girl is brain and guts too. So she just smiles at him and says, sweetheart, I would just love to cook you dinner tomorrow night. And why don't you invite your prime minister, Haman, and I'll cook dinner for the two of you. The king's like, that's all you want? All right, you got it. We'll be there. So the king tells Haman, Haman, you're invited to a banquet tomorrow. Queen Esther's going to cook for us. And Haman is like, I have made it. This is it. I've been invited to the royal palace for dinner. 
They go, Esther feeds them, she's the perfect hostess. The table is set, the food is perfect. It's the best experience because every woman knows the way to her man's heart is through his stomach. But the king isn't entirely convinced that this is all Esther wants. Also, pro tip men, there's always something else we want. But he says, okay Esther, come on, I know you want more than just have a meal with you. Again, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she's like, okay, let me cook dinner again for you tomorrow night. In fact, invite Haman to come back, and then I will tell you what I want. But Haman leaves the palace that night, walking on cloud nine, just thinking he has made it. He's walking down the palace corridors, everyone's bowing before him, until he comes to the gate and sees Mordecai, who doesn't even acknowledge his presence. He gets so filled with rage, but controls himself knowing that soon Mordecai and all of his people will soon be wiped out by his decree. When Haman gets home, calls up some of his buddies and tells them about his rise to the top. You know, he humbly explains, I'm the only person Queen Esther's invited to the banquet and again tomorrow. She's invited me along again and this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So he and his friends come up with a brilliant plan, one of which I imagine a lot of wine is involved. They encourage Haman to build some scaffolding that's 75 feet high, and this will be what they hang Mordecai from. Haman's so excited that he has workers begin constructing this into the night through the morning. He could hardly sleep knowing that in the morning he'd soon be rid of Mordecai. But here is where the plot thickens. I love the Bible. This is so good. This is so much better than Tiger King or whatever you're binging on Netflix. This very same night, the king is also having a hard time sleeping. I imagine Esther strategically overfed or overserved them. Maybe he has a little heartburn. But because he can't sleep, instead of counting sheep, he decides to have one of his servants read from the official records. Because let's be honest, that sounds like a total snooze fest. But as he starts to doze off, his servant starts talking to him about a man named Mordecai and what he had done several months earlier to save the king's life. The king immediately sits up and he asks his servant what had been done to honor Mordecai. And the servant tells him nothing and this really embarrasses the king. That very next morning, Haman is the first to arrive to tell the king all about his plan to hang Mordecai. The king asks Haman a simple question. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, being the humble man that he is, knows he's referring to him. So he goes all out in verses 6, 8 through 9. He says, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed upon its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king loves the idea. In verses 9 through 10, he says, Go at once, get the robe and the horse, and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and do not neglect anything you have recommended. Like, mic drop. This is the ultimate plot twist. Haman couldn't believe it. His anger and his humiliation was through the roof. This was his idea that he just handed to the king and it was going to honor the man that he hated the most. 
That night, Haman shows up to the palace for Queen Esther's second banquet. And once again, the king asks Esther what she really wants from him. And this is point one on your outline. It's always God's timing, not our own timing. She's ready now. She could have gone to the king as soon as she heard the news, but she waited and she prayed and she fasted. She didn't jump into this with eyes closed. She goes on to say to him, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. And then it clicks, and the king realizes his bride is Jewish, and he has signed his own wife's death warrant. He then asks her, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther, with what I imagine is a whole lot of sass and a finger point, says, the adversary and the enemy is the vile Haman. And Haman goes completely pale. The king flies into a rage and has to leave the room. Haman begins to beg Esther for his life. And just as the king comes back into the palace, he sees Haman falling all over Queen Esther. And the king exclaims, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? But hold on, folks, because the real kicker of this story, the king then orders Haman to be killed. And Haman is hung on the very structure that he had constructed to hang Mordecai. If there was ever a time for a nice, long, slow clap of justice, it would be now. But because of Esther's courage, her people were saved, and Mordecai becomes the new prime minister, second in command. Faith always requires action, and that's point two on your outline. Esther did just this. She put her faith in action, even in the face of fear. She fasted, asked others to join in her fast, and she took the steps to accomplish the mission that God called her to do. I want you to return with me to Mordecai's plea in chapter four. He says to Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. In other words, Esther, you're going to be wiped out too. And then he says this, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Write this down if you're taking notes. This is point three. If you don't do something, God will send someone else. Sure, we have free will, but God is ultimately in control. And he will have his way and accomplish his purposes regardless of our involvement. But the good news is he wants to use you and he wants to use me. You know, when God tells us to go, do you know what he's actually saying? The Greek and the Hebrew translation of the word go, spoiler alert, it means go. So what if we became a people to rise up like Esther, especially in the face of fear, and say yes to God when he tells us to go? To say, use my gifts, use my talents, use my story, use Coastal Community Church, and not our will, God, but your will be done. And if we perish, we perish for your kingdom. And that is bold faith. God has put you and me exactly where he wants us for such a time as this. And this is point number four. That is exactly what Mordecai said to Esther. He says, and who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Maybe this is your purpose in life. This is what God has made you to do. Perhaps you've come to this place in life where you are exactly right now so that God may accomplish his will through your life in the most significant way he ever would. 
I think one of the greatest lessons from this story is that God has placed each one of us in positions that we can influence others for good. Don't ever believe that lie that you're insignificant. So often we disqualify ourselves before we even allow God to use us. We say things like, I'm just one person, or I'm not an eloquent speaker, I'm just a mom, I'm just fill in your own blank. You know, for me it was, I'm just an anxious, introverted girl who never expected to be standing in front of you today speaking, but sometimes it takes saying yes, even in the face of fear, putting your faith into action, and believing whatever God brings you to, he will see you through to the very end. God has put you right where you are, in your family, at your work, in your neighborhood, in the very seat you're sitting in right now to change the world one person at a time. You know, Esther didn't know why she became queen, but God knew right from the start. God may have you in a special place for a special purpose at a special time, and you may not even know what it is yet. Your job is to just be faithful, be patient, and honor God in the waiting. And who knows but that you have come into your very position for such a time as this. Coastal, stop waiting on the perfect moment when you feel ready. Bloom exactly where you're planted. Be the salt and the light of the world right where you are, where you live, work, parent, play, because God has you exactly where he wants you. Look around and see the people that he has strategically placed in your life for such a time as this. He's put you where you are to save lives, to be bold, to be a missionary and a disciple of his word. Take some holy risks like Esther did and watch what God will do. Ask God to lay it on your heart to be more like Esther and rise up in the face of fear, give you strength to put your faith in action, and to trust his plan and his purpose for our life. I want to leave you with two questions today. What is God calling you to do? And who will rise up and be an Esther with me today? Amen. Thank you, Ash. Uh, great job, great message, and uh, thank you, like Esther, for saying yes to God's call in your life. What about you? What is God calling you to do? And will you rise up just like Esther? Listen, God has you where he has you for a reason, for a season, for such a time as this. And like Esther, he's waiting on you to say yes, yes to his call. And maybe there is an adventure of faith that God uh, is challenging you to accomplish and step out in faith and do, and he's waiting on you to say yes. Maybe today God is waiting on you to say yes to Jesus to give your life to Christ, to come to faith. Listen, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sin, to rise again, to show his power over sin and death and the grave. And now, today, he's waiting on you to say yes to him, to take that step of faith. Will you take it? Will you say yes? I'd love to step you through that right now, right here, wherever you're at, wherever you're watching this, in a prayer. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, today I thank you for all the faithful women here at Coastal who have said yes to your call on their life. Today I thank you for Stephanie Olson and her vulnerability in sharing how you bring beauty uh, out of our, our tragedy and out of our hardship. Lord, I thank you for Ashley, my good friend. I thank you for uh, her responding to your call in her life and being faithful. 
Lord, today I thank you for your word and I thank you for Esther. May we rise up just like her and say yes. Listen, maybe again, you're, you're listening to this today and there is an adventure. There is a, an act of faith that God has been speaking to you. Say yes to him right now. Say, God, I wanna be your man, your woman. And I'm a little afraid, I'm a little scared. I don't know what the outcome's gonna be. But today, Father, I commit to stepping out in faith and saying, yes, I am all in. Maybe today it's time for you to say yes to Jesus. It's time for you to come home. It's time to, for you to receive forgiveness and salvation in a home in heaven forever. If that's you, if you're ready to make that decision, pray this simple prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe, I do believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he went to the cross for me and my sin, my sin put your son Jesus on that cross. But sin could not contain him and as much as I understand and know how, today I believe that he rose from the dead and he is alive. And Father, Today, I ask your son Jesus to be my Savior and to be my Lord. And for the rest of my days, until you call me home or you come again, I just want to follow Jesus. I want to become more and more like you see me now, forgiven and brand new. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.